Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players proudly brought to you by Valan. We talk all things badminton and aim to inspire you to be better in your game and in life by celebrating the people and stories of our global badminton community, whether they be past or present professional players, social players, officials or fans. We're your hosts, Jeff and Henry, and we love badminton. From the bottom of our hearts, we'd just like to say thank you to everyone who has listened to, shared and been part of the podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you all. If you do enjoy our episodes and can spare just a couple of dollars each month, you can really help keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. We'll leave the link in the description. The Badminton Podcast is brought to you by Volant. Henry and I founded Volant out of our own frustration with the confusing, bright and unsightly clothes we saw in badminton all over the world. But now it's so much bigger than that. Our mission is to simplify the badminton journey and show the world how incredible badminton is. So make sure you check out our badminton basics at volantwear.com and follow us on our socials at volantwear. Our guest for this episode is none other than Christopher Trenholm. For those of you who haven't heard of Chris before, let us give you some context. He is a former professional Canadian player, being ranked number one for his country at one point. He's reached the quarterfinals at the Canada Open, US Open, and he was also a semi-finalist at the Puerto Rico Open. He holds a degree in sport management, was the former assistant US national team coach and manager, former vice president at Badminton Canada, and is now the senior technical events manager at the Badminton World Federation or BWF, where he leads a team of six officers and managers responsible for badminton tournaments, rankings, player management, and so much more. You need to enjoy the process because 90% of the time you're training, 10% of the time you're competing. So you better actually like the 90% Because if you don't, then you're never going to actually get the most out of it because you won't enjoy what you're doing. Don't underestimate hard work and perseverance. I saw so many examples of players that were more talented than me that didn't succeed because they didn't have the work ethic, they didn't have the drive. I've also seen players that had that talent and then went on to huge things. So I always was jealous of the players that had the more talent because they had the opportunity to be the best. But the people that usually succeed are the ones that are working the hardest and persevere. Welcome onto the podcast, Chris. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Happy to be a part of Badminton Conversations. I think it's great that we have more and more podcasts like this or opportunities to talk and share experiences. I think it's a long time coming. So I'm happy to be a part of this one. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on as well, Chris. So from the introduction that I just gave, I probably didn't do you much justice. There's there's so much that's part of your career, but I'm sure that the podcast listeners that are listening right now can tell that there's so much badminton packed into your life. But where we want to start with this podcast is where did it all began? How did it all begin? And what's your badminton story? 
Sure. When I was quite young, I lived next door to a badminton hall, but I didn't even know it at the time. It was like a community hall. And at one point, I just noticed on Sunday afternoons, there was a bunch of people and they were walking into the hall with badminton rackets. So I, I went in that one day and all of a sudden I found myself in a junior program. So I think it was a little bit of just location, sort of getting interested. I played tennis before and football or soccer. I played those two sports before doing badminton. But once I tried badminton, I loved it. I always say to other people that it takes all the different movements and skills of all the other sports and it's all in one. You look at fencing, for example, a lot of the movement we do in badminton is exactly like fencing, but there's so much more limited. I mean, I'm a bit biased, but, and it's also one of the most complicated sports because of all the different things that you have to deal with. But anyway, I loved it from that point because I think I was attracted to all those kind of qualities and it's reasonably easy to start to play. Uh, at least I found it that way. So I started with a coach in that program, and then after a couple of years, went to another local program in a neighboring area. So I was introduced at 13, and it wasn't until about 15, 16 that we had a high-performance coach from another, another province in Canada that came to start to be a club professional at the Victoria Rackets Club. And that is where basically I had to unlearn some of the bad skills I was taught by some of the first two coaches I had and then learn sort of the best technique, both in movement and shots and, and in training in general. And I don't think I would be where I am as an athlete or as a professional without that coach being a part of my life. On my Instagram, the very last thing I posted actually was a memorial to my coach because he just passed away a few months ago but he's impacted thousands and thousands of kids and adults with badminton. So, but anyway, he got me started and kept me in it. And I was kind of like a late starter, but also a late bloomer. Cause I always say to people, I lost in the first round of junior nationals every single year I played. So that was my last year of under 16 and then all the way through to under 19. And it wasn't until I was an adult in open badminton that I actually started to see results on a consistent basis and kept going with it. Played all the provincial, national circuit, national championships, started to play internationally, and then uh, took a break really to take an opportunity in sport management and coaching with USA Badminton. And I wasn't allowed to compete out of a conflict of interest or perceived conflict of interest. So I had to kind of put it on hold, but I was sparring with the players on a daily basis and obviously feeding shuttles and all of those things. And then uh, after two years, their program changed and I left and I came back to Canada and started back playing again. I called my coach and said, I want to get back and do it. And some of the best results I had as a player were from that point forward. So that would have been another five, six years, I think. And then I retired. It's funny, you know, I was watching the Andrew DeBecca interview you guys did earlier this year. And he was, he made me quite nostalgic because I played around the same time that he was. Obviously he was more successful than I, but uh, one of my last matches ever was against him in the U S open in the quarterfinals. And he beat me quite handedly, especially in the second game. But, uh, but it was a memory because that was one of the best results in my opinion for me as a player. And so he was probably second to last match I ever played. Really? So, um, but anyway, it was a little bit nostalgic. So I appreciated you guys doing that interview. It was quite timely. 
And then from that point on, it was mainly into professional, just career with event management. And then an opportunity to get back into badminton, but in as a career came up. So I've been working at BWF ever since. And it's been a real thrill to, to have an influence, to be contributing to badminton on a global level rather than on a national or a regional level. So I'm loving the experience with the work that I'm doing. I've zoomed through many, many years there, but uh, hopefully that gives a snapshot. So, Yeah, it definitely does. And I'd like to go back to, say, when you first started to have to change your technique. So you've been taught some techniques from some other coaches, and then this higher up or more professional coach came and you had to change a few things. And then for the next few years in the junior scene, you said you were losing first round in junior nationals. I guess my question would be, what are your thoughts about changing your technique? So there's probably one part of it where you have to take quite a few steps backwards sometimes if you want to change something drastically in your technique. And I was just wondering what your opinion was as to where do you draw the line between just keeping what you've got and doing everything around it. So trying to mark the weakness or harness more on your strengths and play a certain way to use your strengths. And when do you actually say, no, I actually need to change this technique, even though it might take me one year, two years or however long to actually get to the same level, but then you'll be able to step even further because you've changed your technique. Any thoughts on that? I think there's a bunch of factors because it also depends on your age and your maturity as a player. Because if you're very, very young or very, very early into playing, you don't know, you really don't have a lot of experiences to draw upon. You have to actually rely upon experts. So your coach or coaches or perhaps some mentoring players that can give you some sobering advice. I think also it depends on are you plateauing? You know, have you got to a certain level and you're just not getting any further or results are going down? I mean, that could be a junior level, it could be open level, it could be at any level. So you start to see it in people going past you. So it's a bit of a, you know, you see it, you experience it. I think as an older player, you can more judge or critique your own game. And then it becomes a conversation with the coach. I always remember my coach, he said, the younger you are, the less mature you are. The coach needs to basically run things and really direct things. But as an older player, you have more of a conversation and it's more about what you think you need to do to get better. And then the coach can kind of refine and focus in on some of those things. Obviously, coach is going to have some input too. I think um, it's also having a mindset of being willing to change for the better especially when you're younger and you, you don't have the experience to know the difference. So you have to trust, be willing to do it and trust that it will work for you. I think it can be quite frustrating when you're in the middle of it because unlearning something and then learning something new, you're going to go through a, a hard period of time where you just can't make it work. There's evidence of it in practice, but then you can't put it into competition, whether that's just in practice competition or in actual tournaments. So it can take a long time. And for someone like myself, I'm not the best, most talented athlete. So to unlearn something, you know, at times was quite challenging. But I always appreciated because my coach always said that if you want to succeed in badminton, whatever the discipline, so singles, doubles, mixed doubles, you have to be a great singles player. You have to be able to do everything a singles player can do on a court, which is move. The footwork has to be great. Your fitness, actually, that base of fitness as well has to be there. And then also all the strokes that relate to that. Because if you just try to become a doubles player, you may, have, you may not have the base that you need. 
So I think it's a bunch of different factors based on where you're at with your game and, and also the coach you have around you. And I hope that's helpful to people. That was kind of my experience. Yep. Yep. I think that's really useful because I guess the line is hard to draw as to whether to go one side or the other. Now, when you're talking about your best results, you're saying that a lot of your best results happen when you're a little bit older, after you were in the US coaching, and then you came back to Canada and you said to your coach, I want to start playing and, and being um, professional about it now again. So when you got all of your results, along with maturity and experience, was there anything in particular in the work that you did in the US coaching that helped you get better results after that stint as a coach? Was there something that you learned or something that you changed about yourself or the way that you play? I think working from a coaching perspective, when you're dealing with a national team and they had quite a range of players that were there, that they're kind of like a, the next in line players, as well as current players that were going to try to qualify for the Olympic Games. Players like Kevin Hahn, who was the top men's English player in the US for many, many years, he was there. Raju Rai, who's now retired, but became a US champion. And Howard Bach was there and those kind of players. I mean, being around them anyway, I always considered Kevin better than I was. So I was feeding him and helping train him. But so you always learn from each of the different players what they bring. I think that's always valuable. I think I played a lot of practice matches against those players and it was quite varied. I remember as well, Bob Malaythong was one of the players there too. So you just by being out there, you're playing top players all the time. It's definitely helpful. I think also they being at an Olympic training center, and that was their main one in Colorado Springs, which they have several different national team programs there, resident programs. They have access to all the different sports science. So it's the weight training, the psychology, the nutrition. There's all those different aspects where you have they bring in experts to support each program. So you learn a lot from the experts that you're dealing with. I ended up having a coach to be working with some of those people to set up the actual programs that they would do. So just having those conversations and that planning was also valuable. You know, you get bits and pieces of all of those things can help. But I think just in general, that led to my highlighted results at the end was just more training, more um, fitness, more matches, more volume. Could just focus on it on a regular basis and you're just more mature as an adult. The longer you play, it's not just you as a player, but it's also you as a person and how you approach things, your ability to travel comfortably and take care of things also helps when you're traveling nationally or internationally, things like that. So, And so once you decided to officially retire as a professional badminton player, how did you actually get yourself involved in events management and the BWF specifically? Well, I mean, I would go back before that where even when I was doing a university program, so I was at university and it was a sport management program, as you noted, and, and it had a mandatory, what we call in Canada, co-op program, which meant mandatory work terms. So you had to do four semesters worth of work experience. And I actually was able to, I don't know how I got in because I don't think they allow it anymore, but I got into the US Olympic Committee's internship program. So I ended up being in Colorado Springs years before that as an intern. Sport for me, badminton ended up being an avenue into a career because it opened up doors that I wouldn't necessarily have got to without being a player at a high performance level. 
So that certainly helped. I think the degree that I had helped. I think the choices I made with those different work experience helped. And then um, I just always chose things that allowed me to look at all the aspects of badminton, not just as a, a player or a coach, but as an administrator, as an event planner or event manager. So all of those things combined an interest. I always found that it was like I sat on as an athlete representative to Badminton British Columbia, which is a provincial organization. So I took opportunities to kind of be involved with different aspects of the sport. And I think sometimes players get very focused and I don't blame them. They get very focused as a player and on what they need to do to succeed. But sometimes they're not as aware of what's going on in the organization of the sport that's benefiting them. A better understanding would give them perhaps a little bit of a different perspective on how the whole system works and how everyone is actually trying to help each other rather than kind of that, you know, us versus them kind of perspective. So I know I went off a little bit on a tangent there, but hopefully I kind of explained the um, steps that it took to get to BWF. So. And when you were finishing up your career, was it always going to be, so your playing career, was the next step always going to be in badminton or did you look elsewhere or did you know, okay, I want to stay within the sport? I actually was already in a, in a full-time job in the last few years as a player with the British Columbia Games Society, which is a multi-sport games organization. They put on several different multi-sport games in the province every year. And so I'd already started in that sense. So I was training every day, but then also working full time. So when I finished as a player, I just continued on in the event management field, not necessarily expecting to be involved in badminton as a career, but I took on different volunteer leadership positions. So as I said, badminton BC board, badminton Canada board, but then just happened across a job opening. As simple as that. It was a job posting by BWF. And I actually applied for a different job. I applied for their one of their tournament series manager positions, which is helping to run the world tour. So you're working with the hosts that are doing that. You're on the ground at the tournament, implementing TV and commercial aspects and helping just the overall running of the tournament. I applied for that job and didn't get it. And in an exit interview or an interview to just discuss, you know, what, where did I, what were the gaps? And they had already had created a new position and they noted it that I should put my name in and because this job is coming up. And so I put my name in and ended up being the successful candidate, which is the position that I have right now. So, so yeah, I wasn't expecting to be in badminton, but I would never have envisioned I'd be doing this uh, at this point in my life. So very happy about it. Yeah, wow. It's like when one door closes, the other door opens. Hey, so one of our followers, you actually answered a couple of questions from that follower, Jackson Kurt, who actually asked you when you were a player, did you necessarily know what you wanted to do after you competed, which you have answered there, and how did you land your job at BWF? But the last question he had actually was, what was it like transitioning from a player into your career, which you have now? Well, I mean, I think those are really interesting, or it's a really interesting topic because I think, you know, if you compare me to say something like Andrew DeBecca, so he, over the last several years of his career, he was full-time, he was a full-time player. I never was that. I was always school and play, or I was working and competing and training. So for me, the transition was pretty straightforward. It was already there 
to go on professionally and, and do other things in my life when I decided to stop playing. But I think I'm usual. And perhaps I was in a transition period where I think there's more players now that are full-time than there were when I was playing. I think it was harder. I think Andrew and others will tell you that they probably went broke trying to keep their badminton career going and travel the world and qualify for the Olympic Games and do all of that. I know he probably had avenues to earn some money, but it really wasn't very much. Whereas I think today there's more opportunities for players to be full-time or semi-full-time because they can earn a living and they have more sponsor revenue. They have more prize money and perhaps bonus opportunities. So they can stay and really, really focus as a full-time player. But that also makes it difficult. What do you do when that ends? Have you put any things in place in the last few years of your career to transition into something? Or do you find yourself in this sort of gray zone of, okay, what do I do now? And I think some players struggle with that, but if people are thinking about the transition a few years before they feel that they probably will stop, it's probably one of the best things they can do. And I think that transitions really well into the next question from one of our followers and listeners, and that's from Jojo G. And she said, look, you've got so many responsibilities and roles So as you currently are. And like you were saying before, you were always playing and studying or playing and working. So you always had these dual, at least two responsibilities, if not more. How did you manage all of these different roles? Well, I mean, you kind of just have to vary. You have to look at each thing on its own and focus on it and do the best that you can with it. I was always prepared and my coach always knew that when I was playing and working, that it was a limited amount of time. I couldn't do as a full-time player train two times a day and rest in between and do all the all the recovery things that players can do or have more access to now. So I had to get the most out of a very limited period of time, whether that was getting up really early in the morning and going down to the Bounton Hall and training and then in an hour to hour and a half getting everything done and then quickly going to work and working a full day. That's what I had to do. But in each of those things, you kind of just have to focus and and give it its due. Each thing depends on work, I have a commitment. I have to meet the commitment. The playing, obviously I have a bit more of a choice about what I do with that, but I chose to want to get the best out of that. I think there was, it put some limitations on me as a player. I think, you know, when you're competing against players that are full-time that can actually do more volume of work, they can build a stronger base of, of fitness. I think they have an advantage. Whether they would beat me anyway is, is a different story, but just off the bat, you're dealing with a different level of volume behind your training, which I knew going into it would be a challenge, but I didn't feel like I had a choice that if I wanted to fund or support the playing and the traveling that I could do. I had to work. That was just my circumstances at the time. When we talk about badminton, we often focus on, say, the players themselves, which is fair enough because they're in front of the TV screens, they're playing in front of the world, basically, and then the coaches as well. But behind the scenes and the actual organization and the the management, the event management around badminton is another huge animal that you have to manage, right? Because there's, there's so many moving parts there. So in order for you to get into the area of where you are now, which is more behind the scenes and making sure things run and the experience that you've had in your career so far, if someone was looking to get into that space and maybe they didn't want to be a player or a coach but still wanted to be intimately involved with badminton, 
What do you think the major, let's say, milestones or important things that you learned or important experiences that you had? Which one of those do you think was really important to get you to where you are now? So was it the degree in sports management that really helps, that really push you forward? And then what work experience really helped? And were there certain things that you would advise, okay, you should try to do something like this to get into this kind of role? I think the degree I did certainly helped, but I don't think you need a degree in sport management to be successful in sport as a career or in badminton and in the department in the areas that I'm focused on. I think it's about getting experience in different ways. So like I said, as a player, I was involved in, tried to get involved in leadership opportunities. Like if you look at BWF, there's an athletes commission or, you know, on a national level, I would think in a lot of countries now, there are more and more athlete commissions. Players could get involved in that and get into least shaping feedback and having conversations about how to better the game and better the player's experience, but then also be in leadership within that and be on the board of the athlete commission. I think you could get involved as a technical official. You know, there's lots of examples of technical officials that have careers in sport or they're in leadership positions as well. I know one of the other guests you had on, Julie Carroll from Badminton Oceania, I mean, she's an example of someone who has so many skill sets and experiences. She's been an event manager, event planner. I mean, she used to put on the New Zealand Open and uh, among so many other tournaments. And now she's running Badminton Oceania. Um, She's a BWF referee. So she's been involved in different aspects of the sport. I would encourage people to get involved in ways that are easy to get into, but can give you a lot of experience. So volunteer boards and things like that can be great experiences. Like I said, I, I was on the board for Badminton British Columbia and Badminton Canada. Those things open up doors because you don't know who you're going to meet from there. There's great networking opportunities. For example, I was in 2013, I was vice president of Badminton Canada and the BWF AGM was going to be held in KL actually in Malaysia. And usually the president will go. And at the last minute, the president wasn't able to go. And so I stepped in and went down. And so all of a sudden, there you are opened up to a whole new network of people, whether they'll have an impact or not, but you've exposed yourself to that opportunity. And only a few months later, not knowing or thinking about it, I ended up getting a job there. But maybe some of those connections and people getting to know you helped in getting that position. You just don't know. So it's a bit of networking. It's a bit of making choices of gaining experience. I also think you don't need to be an event manager in badminton to do the BWF job. You You can have experience in other sports as well. You can draw upon those experiences or even event planning outside of sport. All those skill sets are also valuable. It's mainly skill sets and having a broad understanding of how it runs. You can always learn the technical parts of it. It's the broader skills and the broader experience, I think, will help you the most. Yeah. And then speaking of skill sets, Chris, when you look back on your sporting career and what you've learned as a player, are there any things that you learned that are directly transferable to what you do on a day-to-day basis now? I think having been a player, having been a coach and, uh, and played in different international tournaments, I automatically have an understanding of how the, what a player is looking for and what makes a good tournament from a player's experience. But I've also can apply and look at it from a broader organizational perspective. 
I think it helps too when you're looking at laws and regulations and uh, helping to, you know, having conversations about, okay, how we can, what do we need to change to make the sport better through those avenues? Having been a player, you have a perspective that perhaps others may not. So their view on it can be a bit different. So for example, you know, we've had over the years, I even played with five or six different scoring systems. I remember playing best of five to seven at the Norwegian International one year. I played best of five to nine. I played the everything to 15, but then mixed doubles was to 11 and women singles. And then now the three to 21. And certainly there were other um, scoring systems offered over the past several years. So having been through that, you can add to or have a different perspective on those aspects of how our sport is changing whether you think it's, you know, a good thing or a bad thing or somewhere in between. So I think being a player certainly helps in those aspects of the work I'm doing. That's really interesting. You talk about what you can do to make, say, a scoring system and and how that can change the game a lot in terms of the way that you play, of course, but then from a spectator point of view. So using your experience and your your knowledge about how things are running at the moment, what are some things that, say, we can do every day that's going to help badminton say look more prestigious or look a little bit more like tennis because i guess tennis you see them on the court so i know tennis but i'm not very good at it but i can appreciate that um how far they're running and how fast the ball is moving etc but for someone who doesn't really watch badminton sometimes they look at the screen and say look the court's so small it's only one step it looks slow do you have any cool ideas that could potentially make badminton look better from a spectator point of view as well? I mean, I always looked at badminton. You really can't appreciate it until you're actually at court level. Then you can tell how fast it is. I think one of the biggest challenges is television because of the way that it's portrayed on television it slows the game down or it appears to slow down. Like in most of the time, the, the camera angle that you see or what's called like a master shot is the one from high up that shows the whole court and depending upon the venue and all of that can skew a bit how good the sport is. Uh, I think when you got the shot, the camera angles that are lower down, you can really appreciate that. I think that's one of the things that's always going to be challenging, finding a way there. I think overall that there's always things to look at it with new presentation in an arena or whatever it is, the, how close the stands are to the court can also play a big role. Like just as a, my own perspective, being in the stadium for the All England Championships, that stadium in Birmingham, the space between where the spectators are and the court itself is probably the biggest that you'll find on a world tour of the tournaments at that level. I think it takes away a little bit, just my own perspective, it's, it can be harder for spectators to kind of appreciate the game. You're not as close to the sounds and all the things that are going on. Then you go to something like uh, the stadium in uh, Jakarta, which is probably maybe even too close, or the one in, in Paris, the French Open. And it's such an interesting experience in, in Paris because the stands are so vertical. The angle is so high. So you're really close. I think each stadium can offer good things and also has some drawbacks. But with Indonesia and Jakarta, I mean, it's just... You're so close and there's so, so much atmosphere in there. It's so difficult too, because each country has its different culture and how they spectate and how they appreciate. And it'd be great if there were more sort of Indonesian fans everywhere because they'd offer so much more kind of a feeling or experience in the stadium. So, Yeah, it's almost like an electricity in the stadium in Indonesia. 
So Christian, we've been talking a bit about different events and event management in itself. And, and many of us in the badminton community are familiar with events, whether it be, say, the local tournaments or, or even watching, you know, big super series tournaments on YouTube or something like that. But not many people, and, and certainly I probably don't have a very good understanding of how difficult it is to ensure an event runs smoothly. So I guess my question would be, what goes on as an event manager? Just like a top-line perspective, if, say, for example, you were to manage a tournament, we've decided that we've picked the tournament A that you're planning to manage, what are the things that an event manager would need to think about and sort of make sure that they have a reasonable structure around well, the first thing is they, they need to have a core group of committee or a board that are making the decisions that are setting the direction of what that tournament is to be. Obviously, making sure that it's sanctioned and all the basics by the National Federation or whatever it is, so that it can it's allowed to run. But having that core group of leaders that are making the decisions, whether those are paid people or they are volunteers, uh, is important. Then it's all about long-term planning. I always look at it like, okay, you work backwards from when the event is going to be held and you go all the way back to where you think you need to start and what the steps are to keep moving from a macro level down to the fine details right before you run the event. The financing, you know, what is the cost going to be and how am I going to raise that revenue to run the tournament? Is that going to be on a national level? A lot of the time, a lot of the revenue is from entry fees. Even on a, at a grade three level, on an international stage, the players pay entry fees to play and that helps run that tournament or helps provide the prize money. So it's figuring out what is your budget and what is your revenue stream and can you afford to do everything that you want to do. And then I think one of the most important pieces as well is who's going to actually support that? What workforce do you need? volunteers and what expertise do they need? Obviously, you know, you need technical officials, you need a referee, you need umpires. Okay. You can look to your national federation to recruit, but what about all the people that need to do all the different jobs, whether that's months out or during the tournament itself? Um, with my job with BC games for many years, putting on multi-sport games, it was really focused on helping the host city and the host board figure out how to put it all together, but focus on the workforce and focus on the skill sets that each person needed to bring to it. If you have a great group of people that are leading and a great workforce that you've recruited, it can be so much more successful. But if you don't have enough people with the right skill sets, you'll fail or you'll have a bad experience. So I think those are the most important things in general terms, at least on a national level. And I guess the question I have now, which kind of stems from that, is being a senior technical official, like events manager at the BWF, you lead quite a few people from different backgrounds, different cultures, et cetera. In terms of your leadership style, for example, what have you found has been really helpful when you are managing so many different people from different backgrounds? Is there a certain thing that you always keep in mind when you lead? And what have you found to be really effective? Well, I mean, if you focus on the staff that I directly supervise, yes, you're correct. I mean, there's people from different backgrounds, different, you know, educational backgrounds or work experience, and they're based within an existing country and, and culture within that country. So you have to always understand that, you know, me being an expat or not a, a citizen, I'm, I'm a visitor and I'm working with a team. So you have to make sure that it's a, everyone is a part of a team and 
and appreciates the mission and vision and objectives of what we're trying to achieve. So I always want everyone to always stay focused on that. Uh, I want people to feel supported by each other. So everyone to learn a little bit about what each person is doing and so that they can always step in and support each other or take over if someone is not available. So I always want people on an individual basis to come and speak to me if they either want to work on improving a skill or they want uh, feedback or they're concerned about something. So I always try to keep an open door perspective on that. But it's keeping everyone focused on some of the key things. I mean, we have 190 plus members. So when I say members, like national federations that are members of BWF, those are our direct clients. And then within them, there's all those different stakeholders. So you have your players, your team managers, your performance directors, those that are all looking to BWF for different reasons. So customer service, client services has to be really, really important. So if we're processing different things, we need to make sure we're doing it as quickly, efficiently, we're communicating effectively. All of those things are just base for me, really important things that I think you could apply to a lot of other organizations. It doesn't have to be BWF, but considering our client base, it's so varied and big that we have to be good customer service people. Yeah, absolutely. And Chris, now looking back at your career, I know it's not over just yet, but you got a bit longer to go, but you've been in so many different roles around the badminton world, within the badminton world. And I'm sure it's difficult to say which one role that you've enjoyed the most, but perhaps you can tell us which one has taught you the greatest lessons and what some of those lessons might be. That's a real tough one because I think you learn things from each experience. As a player, I learned a lot about myself. I always loved the fact that I had a chance to be one of the best at something where you can actually rank yourself. I mean, if you're in a professional career, how do you, you can't really do that. So I always learned a lot about myself and appreciated the opportunities that I had there. I think each thing along the way has taught me lots of things. It's really difficult to point at one thing. Each step you take in your life or your career or whatever those things are, I think you're going into it with a different level of maturity and different level of experience. So each thing that you do, when you look back on it, you know, I look back and I say, well, you know, when I was coaching at USA Badminton, well, maybe if I was went into it now, I probably would have had a different experience, positively, negatively, who knows, but I probably could have done different things and contributed in a different way. But each one gives you an experience that you um, helps build who you are. So I look back and I appreciate all of it. But again, I always go back and say, if I wasn't a player, I didn't have the opportunity to be a player and at a high level, I don't think I'd be where I am with my career. So I guess maybe it was being a player in the very, very beginning. Set the tone and set the experiences, right? So yeah, that's really cool. So if we look at the badminton community as a whole now, so not just the professional badminton players that you deal with on a day-to-day basis, not personally, but the structure that you're forming for the professional circuit, If you're looking at just the local clubs and the badminton community in general, what do you think is really important for for the community to do to really build the sport and bring it to the forefront and and compete with a tennis or a a basketball or a football? What do you think are really important things that we can do on a community level? I think depending upon the country and the culture that you're going to have greater opportunities in some and lesser opportunities in others right off the bat because sport, the badminton is competing potentially 
with so many other professional sports that already have such a base. If you look at North America, you're dealing with so many different professional sport leagues that culturally have been around and will always sort of be at the forefront. So you're competing against that. Whereas if you're in Denmark, it's one of the top few sports, or if you're in China or you know Indonesia, et cetera, you're going to have a different opportunity to leverage the sport and move it forward. But I think telling the story is one thing. I mean, I also think, unfortunately, it's about creating a, a player or a star that can draw attention. I always remember at USA Badminton, they were always wanting or looking at building a world champion as a way to boost the popularity of the sport. And Howard Bach became that, but I don't know what kind of impact that had, but that can, because the story can be told. I mean, you look at Michelle Lee in Canada. I mean, I'm sure the sport is more popular because of her and potentially, you know, more players in some of these more developing countries in badminton, that can go a long way. The internet now has provided more exposure to badminton in a televised way. When I was really, really young in the sport, basically it was like a, someone gave you a videotape of a Thomas Cup final from years ago to watch some of the top players. Whereas now you can see BWF's YouTube channel and you know, Badminton Europe and others that are streaming badminton. I think that just helps in general because now more people can see it. I think national federations should always have either a formal committee or always have it as part of their strategic plan to build the sport and tell the story. They need to leverage opportunities with their own governments, their you know ministries for sport and other organizations that help tell the story of sport as well. That can go a long way. But it is a challenge. It will always be a challenge for the sport. We're regional. When you look at the globe, we're quite regional. Um, we have a great opportunity with badminton being in Asia, being so big. But there's opportunities to grow it in South America and North America and Africa as well. So, And definitely in Australia as well. Can't forget Australia. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just sport fans, but I think it's going back to what I said. I mean, there's so many other sports competing for people's attention. And you have a legacy of, of certain sports that have always been there and people always look to that. It also is a factor in recruitment of athletes because what are you going to choose? You know, you're going to choose a sport that you're more familiar with, you think is more popular, you see the stars as opposed to getting into badminton because who is your role model in your own country? So, yeah, and we'll definitely keep chipping away. Now, Chris, we are at the end of our podcast, but the last question I want to ask you is that. Is there something that we should have asked you, but we haven't? No, but I know that one of the things that you always want the guests to talk about, which is, I made some notes on it, was just the three things for people to take away. So, I mean, I had that prepared. So in case you either asked or didn't ask, I could at least throw that in there at the end. So, Yeah, please yeah, do. Go. Yeah, absolutely. Do. I mean, I'm going to sort of go around a little bit, but as a player... I think one of the best things that I learned and my coach was always saying this to me, you know, and it always stuck was you need to enjoy the process because 90% of the time you're training, 10% of the time you're competing. So you better actually like the 90% because if you don't, then you're never going to actually get the most out of it because you won't enjoy what you're doing. I saw so many players that whether they were forced to or or otherwise, they dropped away because they didn't enjoy what they were doing. It was a chore. It was work. That was one of the reasons the decision-making for me when I retired was I just didn't... It felt like work. 
it is work. It's hard work, but work in a sense of drudgery. I didn't feel like I was enjoying it anymore. So kind of felt good that I just, it was time to move on from there. It's kind of a segue to the next one about hard work, but don't underestimate hard work and perseverance. I saw so many examples of players that were more talented than me that didn't succeed because they didn't have the work ethic. They didn't have the drive. I've also seen players that had that talent and then went on to huge things. So I always was jealous of the players that had the more talent because they had the opportunity to be the best. But the people that usually succeed are the ones that are working the hardest and persevere. There's lots of examples of players from the past that if you knew what their origins were and you watched them when they were quite young, you'd be shocked that they were the top 10 in the world or top 20 or whatever it was. So I think that's a a huge thing. And if you're talented, work hard. You'll reap the benefits over everybody else. And then I think I touched on this earlier anyway, which is I would encourage players and people interested in badminton to get involved in all the different ways you can. Volunteering, being on a board, being a technical official, learning to be a coach, you know, whatever those opportunities are that are afforded you, get a more well-rounded experience in the sport. Playing is great, but playing and also understanding how it works and working in a different area will add value to you as a player, in my opinion. Definitely. So awesome. Three take-home pieces of advice from Chris. Now, if any of the listeners out there want to connect with you to ask a question about how they could potentially uh, in their career look at doing something like events management or, or look at different roles such as that, how would they be able to make contact with you? Well, I mean, it, I do a little bit of social media. I sort of spend more time on Instagram. I don't know if that's a way that other guests have offered for communication so people can go there. I don't know if you'll post that or put that as part of the information with this podcast, but uh, the Viking Diaries, it, I call myself that. Oh, it was a friend of mine that knew social media and they said, oh, you should come up with a, a different name. And, and as I was saying, my last name, Trenholm, is Norwegian in origin and goes back to Viking days. So the friend of mine said, oh, call yourself the Viking Diaries. And the Vikings traveled everywhere and I like to travel. So that's why my name is that. But once you find the Viking Diaries, you'll see my name underneath just to verify. So maybe that's the best way people can communicate if they have questions. Yeah, no problem whatsoever. We will definitely put that handle, the Viking Diaries, in the podcast description so you can check that out so you can connect with Chris. So just from all the listeners out there in the world, in our badminton community, and from Henry and I, Chris, we just want to say thanks so much for spending the time to share your knowledge and be a part of the Badminton Podcast. Enjoyed it. Thanks so much, guys. I appreciate what you guys are doing. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. So from Henry and I at the Badminton Podcast, thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed it or found it useful, Be sure to share it with your family, friends, teammates, and someone outside your badminton circle too, because with your help, we can show the world how incredible badminton is. To keep up to date with new episodes and who we're interviewing next, make sure you connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at The Badminton Podcast, and on Twitter at The Badminton Pod. Feel free to contact us and ask any questions, give us feedback or request topics for future episodes. We love hearing from you. And remember to check out and shop for your simple and minimalist badminton gear at volantwear.com. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.